Today's Old Testament reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Let me pray. Jesus, we, we wait for you. Uh, we look around in this world and we see trouble. And we see pain and we see suffering. We see violence and assault and abuse. And we cry out to you, how long, O oh Lord? Father, we wait for you. We wait for your Son to come again in glory, to make right what is wrong. And Father, even as we come to your word this morning, we look at ourselves and we ask this question. This question that the prophet asks, we've been in our sins so long, shall we be saved? And we thank you that we know the answer that Jesus has given to us. That any who come to him and cry out to him and call upon his name that he won't cast aside and he won't cast out. So this morning we come to him again. We come to him with all of our own evil and all of our own sin. And we find comfort, I pray that we would find comfort and rest in Jesus and in nowhere else. And we ask this in his name, his name alone. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you found out something about somebody that... It's sort of like a little juicy tidbit, right? You, you heard something about someone that exposed them in some way, something bad that they did. And as you, as you heard this, you started to kind of meditate upon it. You started to think about it. You started to get angry. And you started to think, this person who looks like so good on the outside and appears to be this way on the outside, they're just a hypocrite. We know what they're really like now because they've been exposed. And the more that you think about it and the more you start to meditate on this piece of information you got, the more you start to really want this person to pay for what they've done. You you kind of internally begin to long for them to be punished for what they did. I mean, maybe even in the last few weeks, I mean, in the cycle of news that we're getting, uh, maybe you've 
seen people that you thought were one way and it's been revealed that there's actually some dark secrets in their life and you started to think, I want justice to be brought to them. And maybe if you've been in that situation before and you were maybe sitting with a friend one day and you're talking about this and you're thinking about this particular person and you're kind of ranting about what this person did and you're thinking about who this person really is and you're telling your friend, you know, this person really needs to pay for what they've done. And if you have a friend who's a good friend, maybe they gradually started or subtly started to show you that you're actually guilty of the same thing. And it hits you. Or maybe it, just, maybe it does just hit you. Maybe it, you don't need anybody else. Maybe you're just meditating on somebody else and what they've done and you're angry about it and something pops back up into your head and you realize, I am as guilty as this person who I'm angry at. This, this same thing happened, you remember, to David. David, um, the man after God's own heart, was also a man who was a big sinner, right? And we have his sin recorded for us. And, and you know, he was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of arranging the murder of his mistress's husband. These are pretty big things. And right after these things happened, David wasn't so repentant about them. The weight of them hadn't really hit him yet. And so God sends to David the prophet Nathan. And you remember Nathan comes to David and he tells David a story. And I won't recount the story. You can go back and read it. But basically what David talks about is he said there's this man and he's, he's acted sinfully and he's acted pridefully and he's acted in arrogance. And David hears this story and he gets incensed. He gets so angry that he's like, we need to find this man. We need to punish this man. And Nathan turns to him and says, you are the man. It's you. And David is undone. David, for the first time, sees himself clearly. He sees himself in a mirror and he is completely grieved and he begins to lament over his sin before God. We have it recorded for us. You can go back and read Psalm 51. You can read Psalm 32 that David laments and grieves over the evil, not necessarily this out there, but in in him. And he's melted. And he finds God's forgiveness there, and it's there that he finds hope. And I want us to see this morning that hope always begins with lament. Hope always begins with lament. It begins with with coming to terms with how bad things actually are. You you see that hope is never, it never really looks like hope until you see how dire a situation is. That the good news never really sounds like really good news until you understand how bad the bad news is. And in our current culture, we have to admit that we're not really that good at lament. That's not something that we do really well. In fact, we would, we would much rather quickly turn our head away from anything that disturbs us, anything that looks difficult or anything that looks hard, whether it's in the world or whether it's in our own hearts. But the Bible, if you go back and read the Bible, it is full of lament. It's full of, of crying out to God in grief. You read the Psalms and a, a vast 
amount of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. They're crying out to God about what they see in the world, but also in what they see in themselves. To lament, maybe even, we're we're not even maybe familiar with the word, but to lament is to grieve and it's to mourn over what grieves God. It's to grieve and it's to mourn over what grieves God. And while that might seem like a little bit depressing to some, it's actually not until we get there that we begin to see what hope actually looks like because this is where we meet Jesus. We meet Jesus in the depths. We meet Jesus in the pit of despair. We meet Jesus in the lowest places. And hope begins with lament. I wrote an email um, to those of you who go to Grace and Peace regularly this week. And I talked to you a little bit about the season of Advent. Because I think it's a season that we're not that familiar with in America. And we're not that familiar with in the church. It's something that we've sort of left behind Because the season of Advent is really a season of fasting. It's a season of lamenting. It's a season of crying out to God that comes before this glorious feast of Christmas. You know, Christmas actually begins on Christmas Day. We sing the song 12 Days of Christmas because the feast of Christmas goes for 12 days. But the season that comes before is the season that starts today and goes for the next four Sundays. It's the season of Advent, and it's largely been ignored. It's a time that we examine ourselves. It's a time when we grieve for the pain and the injustice and the suffering that we see around us in the world. It's a time that we cry out to God. And most importantly, this time, this season, is a time that we wait for and expect and long for and find hope in the fact that Jesus is coming again. That Jesus is coming in glory. That Jesus is preparing a place for us. That Jesus is preparing a feast for us that we cannot imagine. That Jesus is coming. He's also coming in judgment. I put a quote in the front of your bulletin. You can go back and read it later, but judgment is one of those words that scares us. But think about it in this way, that Jesus is coming to make right what you see wrong in this world because he is a God of justice and he is also a God of mercy. And so vengeance, we remember in this season, it doesn't belong to me. When I see things that are wrong out there, it's not up to me to take them into my hands. It's not up to me to punish the wicked, that when we wait for the coming of Jesus, we wait for him to do what he will with what is his. We wait for the Lord. And so this morning, just as, just as God sent Nathan to sit with David, he sent a prophet to sit with David, I want us to sit with this other prophet, Isaiah. I want us to sit with him, and I want us to listen and learn from him, because he was speaking in a time of great waiting, When God's people were waiting for this Messiah, when God's people were waiting for the torment and the oppression that they were experiencing to end, when God's people were thinking, is God distant? Is he silent? Has God forgotten us? And I want us to see this morning that that even as God's people cried out for justice, it caused them to look at themselves. And it caused them to examine themselves. So I just want to look at two things this morning. 
I want to look at the fact that hope begins with lament over what we see around us in the world. And hope begins with lament over what we see in ourselves. Hope begins with lamenting over what we see in the world, but it also begins with lamenting over what we see in ourselves. Let's start with that first one. What about the world around us? Some of you may have read or seen the play. Maybe you're in high school or in college and you were forced to read this or or watch it. The play um, by Samuel Beckett called Waiting for Godot. Anybody ever read that or watch it? There's like one person. Okay. Great illustration, Tim. It reached one person. No. So basically, the play is, the reason I said you might have been forced to is that it's one of those that you read and you go, there's nothing that happens. There's two acts. It's the same scene. There's essentially two characters that talk the whole time. And they're talking about really what is the, they're pondering the meaning of existence. They're talking about religious and philosophical things and they're wondering, like, really, what is, what is this life about? And they're having this conversation the whole time. They're waiting for one other person to show up, this person who we never meet. His name is Godot, and Godot never arrives. What is the meaning of the world? What is, what is, why, why are we in a time of warfare? All of these questions are coming out while they're waiting for this person to show up, and this person never shows up, and then it's over. And I think, to be honest, this is how many people in the world feel as they think about those same questions, as we ponder the questions of our own existence, as we ponder why we're here, why there's so much hurt in the world, that we, that we think, God, now would be a good time for you to show up. We're talking about this, and we're waiting for you to show up, but where are you? Now would be a good time for you to show up. And I'm not entirely sure if it's because of the time that we live in, but we continually get more news dumped on us than probably any person who's ever lived on the face of the earth, that we're bombarded with information. And so there's not a day that goes by when we don't hear about a mass shooting or we don't hear about an act of terrorism, or we don't hear about somebody um, suffering underneath someone in power, maybe being sexually taken advantage of. There's not a day that goes by where we don't hear about threats of nuclear war. And we have to ask the question, then what do we do with those things? What do we do with all of that? What, What do you do with all of that information? Because you're taking it in too. And you need to know this, if you feel like you're waiting, if you feel like in the midst of all of this that you're, you're going, I'm trying to learn what it means to wait on the Lord, I want you to know that you're not, you're not alone. And this is, what, this is the wisdom of these prophets, and this is the wisdom of the scriptures, because what we see is that God's people have always been well acquainted with waiting. They've always been well acquainted with waiting. That we're told over and over again in the Psalms that that we are to wait upon the Lord. Oh, Israel, wait upon the Lord. But I also want you to know this, that waiting is never just passive. That waiting is hard. That waiting is active. 
that waiting sounds like the first line that Madison read to you, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That you would rip open heaven and get down here. That's part of what waiting looks like. It's such a powerful, forceful request that they're making to God. God, we need you here. Have you seen what's going on? We need you here. Why? So that the mountains might quake in your presence. We need you here so that you might make known your name to your adversaries. You see what the prophet is saying, that he's, he's looking around and he's looking at a world that he's saying, the world pretends as if you do not exist. The world acts as if there is no creator. And they've turned, like Paul tells us in Romans 1, and they're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. They've taken matters into their own hands. They don't acknowledge you. He's saying, it is a mess down here, and we want you to show up and make your name known. Hope begins with looking at how bad things actually are. That's that's something we're supposed to do. That's something that Christians are supposed to do, that it's a time when we look deep into the heart of the hurt of this world, that we don't turn our head away, that we don't numb ourselves out, that we don't, leading up to this feast of Christmas where we think about the coming and the incarnation of Jesus, that the time leading up to that, that we don't numb ourselves out. By thinking about what's the next thing that I can buy that will take away a little bit of the pain, that will distract me enough so I don't have to think about this. Why? Because Scripture tells us that our life is really short, and it tells us that our life is like a mist and like a vapor, and before we know it, it's gone. And if you simply spend your life making yourself comfortable so that you might distract yourself from what is really painful and hard in the world... At the end, what do you have? You've missed the opportunity to actually see where hope is. But along with that, I think that we actually do know how to lament. I mean, we're, we're good in some ways at the concept. The question is, what do we lament? And I look at my, I'm asking myself this question, and I'm asking myself this question this week, and I realize that most of the things that I lament to God are injustices that I believe are brought against me, right? The most, of the, most of the things that we cry out, would you rend the heavens and come down because my job is too hard? Would you rend the heavens and come down like my spouse doesn't understand me completely? My teacher is mean. Things aren't working out for me the way that I want them. And I want to ask you this question. Are we lamenting as a church over the hurt, pain, and justice that we actually see around us in the world? Are we crying out to God on behalf of our neighbors, on behalf of the pain that we see in the world? Does it make you angry? Does it make you angry when you hear reports of women being taken advantage of behind closed doors by people who have power to sway it over them? Does it make you angry? It should make you angry. Does it make you angry when you see minorities targeted? I have a friend who has been pulled over 
so many times in the last month. Is that your car? He's a seminary student. Does it make you angry when you see injustice? Does it make you angry when you see abuses of political power? Does it make you angry when the world is set up to make the rich get richer and the poor get poorer? Does it make you angry when you see people who have power not use it to love their neighbor but to actually suppress their neighbor? It should make you angry and it should make you grieve because it grieves God. And he wants us to cry out. And he wants us to cry out to him that we should rightly lament even as we wait on the Lord. Where is it that you have a hard time waiting? Where is it hard for you to wait? And let me ask you this, where do you take it? Where do you take it? In verse 4, this prophet Isaiah, he turns to God himself and he starts to recount who God is. He starts, this is what the prophets are always good at doing. They cry out. This is what the psalmists are good at doing. They cry out and they say, we want you to do something about this. And then they turn and they begin to recount the character and the nature of God and who he actually is, that they begin to remember that, yeah, you have shown up before. We've seen you show up. It wasn't in our timing, but it was in your timing. We were enslaved for 400 years, and you showed up with plagues, and you parted seas, and you brought us into a promised land. The prophets tell us, he basically is saying that there is no other God like you. The world has never seen a God Besides you, there is nowhere else for us to take our pain. There's nowhere else for us to take our hurt. And then he goes on to say, but those who wait for you, you act on their behalf. That's a promise. That he acts for those who wait for him. Why why is waiting such an important theme in the Bible? I want us to know that it's an important theme for us to wait because we're impatient. I'm impatient. Why is it important, theme of the Bible? I think it's important because our default mode is to believe that things would get better if we would simply take matters into our own hands. That things would get better if we could figure out human solutions to problems that are actually rooted in the fallenness of the world and the fallenness of man. And so as to, and to wait, as Advent instructs us to wait, is to more clearly see this bleak truth. That there is no human capacity able to rescue the planet from itself. That's what Advent is bringing you to. This is why it's a season of lament. This is why it's a season of crying out. Because the point where we begin to see where hope actually is, is the point where we give up hope in anything else but God. And it brings us to that point where we see there is no human capacity able to rescue this planet from himself. There is no government that's going to be so perfect that eventually it's going to make the world right again. And if the church thinks that that's where power is found, and it sells its soul to that, then it's on a fool's errand. It's believing a lie. You see, even as we cry out, we begin to realize that God maybe is not being silent. Because a thousand years to God is like a day. And sometimes to us, a day feels like a thousand years. 
But God is not being silent. God has always acted. God has always shown up. And maybe he's at work even now in a way that we can understand. And he says, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Hope begins with lament. It begins with seeing and feeling, taking in the pain and the injustice of the world, and then taking it to the only true God. And I'm so thankful for the wisdom of a season that calls us not to turn our heads away from that and not to run away from that, but to lean into that and to yearn for a day when he will make all things right again. It helps us to see our place in this world. It helps us to remember what all creation is building towards. But secondly and lastly... Hope begins with lament, not just over what we see out there, but hope begins with lament and what we see in here. What we see in here. There's this incredible turn in this passage that I think is so much like the turn that David makes when Nathan visits him. As, the, as, as God's people, they're lamenting over sin and injustice. They see around them, they cry out to God who is just. And it, it's, it's if it dawns on them at that moment, is the same cruelty and injustice that we see in the world also in us? Am I the man? What a good turn that is for us to make. What, what, what a necessary turn it is to make. And it's a turn that if we don't make it, we grow bitter and we grow angry because you see it here so clear that God's people become, they just melt before him. They become humble before him. They, they say, in our sins, we have been such a long time. And they, they come to the point where they say, shall we be saved? That's humility. It's, it's the same turn that, you see the proud Saul make when, when Saul meets Jesus and he is humbled to the dust and he goes on as he writes letters to the New Testament church that, that he says to them, you know what I am? I am the chief of all sinners. When I look at the world, I mean, think about what the Apostle Paul is saying. When I look at the world and I see every heinous thing out there, what I realize is that I am chief among them. Listen to what they take to God. They say that they are unclean. They say that even their righteous deeds, even the good things that they do are polluted. They're like filthy rags. That they're frail and they fade like a leaf. That they're quickly swept up in iniquity. That they admit that they are unrighteous and just like everyone else. That we are all unrighteous before God and it quickly, it melts them. It's like as if they consider, they ask this question, would you rend the heavens and come down? And then they start to think about, well, if he does come down to squelch the wicked, it dawns on them, aren't we the wicked too? (laughs) Isn't that us? And their lament does something to them. Their lament, even as they lament the things in the world, it turns and they begin to lament the things in their own heart. And their lament leads them to repentance. And it humbles them to the point where they say this, O Lord, you are our father, and we are the clay, and you are the potter. It's a way of saying, do with us what you will. What we deserve is your judgment. What we deserve is your displeasure. 
we are clay and you're the potter. And of course, ultimately, we know the answer to this request, right? We know the answer to this request that you would rend the heavens and come down. And of course, God does rend the heavens and he comes down in a way that they never would have expected. A way that nobody would have predicted because he takes on flesh and he decides to be born of a woman. A poor young girl who is a nobody. Born in a nothing town. Laid in a feeding trough. And when he comes the mountains don't quake. And he doesn't shake his fist at his adversaries. Instead, when he rends the heavens and comes down, what Jesus, who is the perfect imprint of God's character and nature, does is he moves towards those who are lowly and those who are humble and those who are desperate and those who are needy and those who are sick and those who see themselves for what they really are. He moves towards them. He moves towards people who say, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. Jesus, when he shows up, when the heavens are rent and he comes down, he moves towards those who he says beats their breasts and cry out, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Hope begins with lament. Why? Because lament leads us to humility. It leads us to humility. And over and over again in the scriptures, we're told that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we worship a Savior who humbled himself, and he came down to find those who cry out, Because what they see is that the same wickedness they hate in the world is actually also in their hearts and they need to be rescued. Is that us this morning? I want us to cry out for what we see in the world. I want us to be angry about it. But I never would ever in a million years want us to do it without first looking at ourselves and saying what I see there is what I also see here. Friends, church, in the next few weeks, take time. I know that the the thing that we hear over and over again in these weeks leading up to Christmas is how busy they are. Why are they busy? Take time to examine the pain and the suffering in this world around you. Don't turn your head away from it. Cry out. And as you cry out, take time to examine yourself and see how you've contributed to the very things that you despise in the world. And let that lead you to humility, and let it lead you to repentance. And when you are led to repentance, what you find there is forgiveness. And it leads us to rejoicing that there is one who came to stand in our place. And that same one is coming again in power, and he is coming in glory And he is coming to make all things new. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that your timing is not our timing. We thank you that you are wise. We thank you that you are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. 
Father, we thank you that you care more about the hurt and the pain and the injustice of the world than we do. Father, we thank you that even though our sin grieves you and hurts you, that you sent your Son to become sin for us and to stand in our place, that you showed up in a way that we never would have expected. And I pray that in these coming weeks that we would, you would make our hearts burn, that you would make us long for Jesus' return. And we ask this in his name. Amen.